This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, look, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted! Intercepted! And it's in the ball! Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, The Game. Hey, everybody. Matt Bagley here. Justin Hopkins on the interwebs alongside me via Zoom. And we're going to have a roundtable very soon with our friend Hit Day from Addicted to Quack and our pal QB11 over on the Scoop Duck boards. Big day today and hopefully a uh, nice end to the month of October, getting us ready for Pac-12 football just a few days away. Justin, my friend, I- I'm chomping at the bit. Just just media to media. I wish we had a game to cover on Saturday. How about you? Yeah, it's just been such a long lead up, you know, and uh, it, it's just it's, you know, it's been hard for us, just like it's been for fans. You know, you enter the month of of August, kind of hoping that you're going to see football in September or whatever the case might be, even a revised schedule, conference only schedule, you know, everything kind of gets postponed there. And then, you know, you, you, you write it off and then all of a sudden it's back, but there's still football being played. So it feels like we've had three months of fall camp, which we haven't, but we kind of had, have had, and you're finally just, it's, you're over it. Yeah. Like I'm over it. And, and even, yeah. you know, we were riffing with Hitler day for just a second there. It's like, I'm just kind of bored with everything I've done up to this point. I'm ready for football. Just give me some football, you know? No doubt. Um, got to address one big story before we get on Hitler Day. Um, I, we got to talk about that scrimmage from last weekend. Uh, what, what kind of impact do you think that had on the Ducks' preparation for the Stanford game? You know, I, I, I don't want to downplay it, but I don't want to overplay it. You know, scrimmages are very important for those coaches, you know, not just to see individual players, but to see schematically what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong, what's successful, what's not successful, um, you know, where you need to improve. You, you get valuable. It's not just the, the two hours of scrimmage. It's all the film that comes along with it. And I think that those are a lot of the big things that you lose out on. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, you know, let's assume Oregon loses Stanford next week. You know, they lost because they didn't get that scrimmage. And that's not fair to say. But those are very important things. And I think they really come into play in a year like this where, you know, there was so much uncertainty. You had players away. Then you bring them back and you get right into a fall camp. Um, every day matters. Every every practice matters. Every rep matters uh, when the stakes are this high. And the problem for Oregon, specifically when it comes to Oregon in this case, is you need to be prepared to get everyone's best shot week in and week out. You know, when, when, when everybody says, hey, Washington State says they're playing Oregon, they're getting amped up for that game. When Stanford knows that they're playing Oregon, they're amped up for that game. So you're going to get everybody's best shot. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, and the stakes are razor thin when it comes to major college football. I mean, you just never know when a slip-up can happen. We've seen a lot of upsets this year because of sloppy play, because – teams haven't been able to prepare quite as well or they've had outbreaks on their team and they're suddenly playing a guy that's second or third on the depth chart and that guy's not ready so does it have an impact it certainly does there's no way to get that back and and it does have an impact that said you know Oregon was able to move through that pretty quick and I believe personally I think overall 
given that they lost the scrimmage, I think it's a good thing for you to be able to kind of go through that and kind of give a, a red alert to your players like, hey, look, you know, you can get triggered for a test. This is what happens if you're out and about and not, you know, practicing our safety protocols and doing the right things, you know, making sure that you're staying safe. You might not get to play. You know, I, I, I think it could be a, a very positive that the, the program, the coaches, the health authorities were able to kind of go through that process you know, basically in a preseason time versus having to do it for the first time during the season. So I want to take a little bit away from that in a positive way. And that for me really is, I think, I think it can serve as a wake up call to the team. I think it was a very valuable, you know, process for them to go through just to kind of see what happens and, and, and the steps and all the protocols. And, and hopefully maybe it just keeps Oregon that much healthier the rest of the season. I mentioned earlier, we're going to do a little bit different of a podcast today than we normally do. It's not just Justin and I riffing, and we're not just going to have one guest. We're going to kind of build a roundtable, and that starts right now with our friend Hithliday, who writes extensive, really informative breakdowns on Addicted to Quack. That's addictedtoquack.com. My friend... I think this is a really good opportunity to kind of pitch that same question to you and see how you swing at it. The Ducks had a scrimmage scheduled last weekend. They weren't able to get it in because of uh, some COVID precautions. What are your thoughts on that and how you think it might impact their path to play the opener against Stanford? Well, I think Justin's right. I think the most significant part about it is lost film uh, of where guys are at in camp. Um, and it probably means that they will wind up going more, a little more with their guts, you know, in terms of making personnel selections uh, than they might have. Uh, that said, you know, I've been staring at Oregon's roster for, you know, almost a year now. Uh, and it's, you know, I think most of the answers to these questions are fairly easy. They're returning quite a bit of production. They know who their backups are going to be. They took transfers to certain positions because they knew where they, you know, had areas of need. And, uh, you know, while it's always possible for guys to take big steps over the off season, um, you know, I sort of suspect that these decisions have mostly already been made at this point. Uh, and so I don't really think of, you know, going to have a huge effect. Yeah, I, I think one of those one of those things that that you mentioned that kind of to piggyback off you there, Hith, is is you're kind of looking at the twos and the threes more than the ones. You know, you're looking at hey, we get an injury, we get a COVID, who's first guy off the bench? Who's you know who's the who's the sixth man in the in the offensive line rotation? And and like you said, just losing that film, uh, you know, watching those guys a little bit more than you might be able to in scrimmage is is probably the biggest impact for sure. Uh, looks like QB11 is just about to join us. We'll get his thoughts on all that as well. Uh, real quick, guys, Justin, you put a piece out um, kind of piggybacking off of a really insightful project, I thought, by CBS Sports, where they looked at the difference between uh, Oregon play calling in 2019 and the L.A. Chargers play calling in 2020, kind of looking at where Justin Herbert has uh, been able to thrive a little bit more. And Hith, you pointed out some criticisms of that. I'm I'm curious, did you agree with that at all, the, the idea that the Ducks were uh, running and, and protecting Justin Herbert more than the Chargers are? Well, first of all, I 
should say I don't do film study on the NFL. I, you know, have been watching Justin Herbert because I'm a Ducks fan. I'm rooting for the kid. Um, So, you know, I'm not really in a position to make any comparisons there. Uh, However, that the CBS article that you referenced did, in my opinion, a pretty sloppy work in terms of analyzing what Oregon's play calling was. There's, you know, one of the conclusions that they reached was that Oregon on third and seven or longer in on uh, in 2019 was was calling rush plays 20 percent of the time which is there's that's nowhere close to being true uh and it's demonstrably like it would not be difficult at all to double check that against the play-by-play uh and if you do you come up with like three percent called runs which is about standards what everybody does no one would ever do 20 percent. i thought that was really shoddy work not to you know double check that the only way they're getting to 20 the author didn't answer my question about uh how he came to that number but in my opinion from looking at the number i suspect what he did was was he counted quarterback sacks and scrambles which obviously you know those were called passing plays, you know, Marcus Arroyo, whatever else you want to say about him was not telling Justin Herbert to take sacks. Um, uh, And, um, and as such, like, look, you know, I've watched enough of the Chargers offense to tell you it's a different type of offense Uh than Oregon was running in 2019. And if, you know, everyone is entitled to their opinion about which is a, you know, a better offense or which is a better fit for Justin Herbert's talents, you're not entitled to your own facts. And he got the facts wrong. I, I, I'm just fascinated by that. I, I wasn't critical at all. I just uh, I love hearing stuff like that and, and seeing what you said the other day. Got me fired up about it. Uh, looks like QB11 just joined us. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. How are you guys doing? It's a, it's a, it's a party up in here. It's like we're a hockey team and we're at full strength now. So, no. <laughs> it's good. And I know you're just jumping in QB, but we've mostly at this point been talking about how we're all frothing at the bit for, for actual football, almost to the point of where we're tired of talking about it and, 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 and charting things and analyzing things. It's like, man, just give us a football game already. How are, how are you feeling about things? The same way. I mean, I'm overanalyzing to the point where I'm actually contradicting myself from one day to the next where you just, you, you're so ready for football that um, you, you think something's going to be one way and then you start to worry about it because you haven't seen it in so long and you start to think that you were wrong initially. So I'm just ready for some actual tape to watch. I know Hippo Day probably is too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You you, you just uh, described my mentality exactly. Like, it, you know, we're going to talk about Stanford here. You know, a little sneak preview. Like, I've been down on Stanford for, you know, like 28 months now. And just as the, the game gets closer and I'm more and more bored, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe Stanford <laughs> could. And I'm like, no, no, got to go with your gut. You know, don't double guess yourself. Like, yeah. Well, I just think back to the year where Notre Dame played Alabama in the national championship game. And I knew going in like a month before the game, I was like, Alabama is going to wipe the floor with these guys. They don't have the talent to play. And then as the game got closer, that month layoff, I was like, well, you never know. Maybe Notre Dame can give them a game. And then, of course, it just comes out and Alabama wipes the floor with them. So <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those things where you just I'm going to trust my initial instinct on things and hopefully I'm right. Uh, let's start with Justin. Where are we most confident about the Ducks playing Stanford? You know, it's uh, and I'm excited to get into this because I, I feel that I'm might be the lone wolf in this uh, equation. I know I know Hiff is, is fairly down on Stanford. I think QB11 is reasonably down on Stanford as well. And everything that I, I kind of hear coming out of of Oregon is is at least you know on this side of things in the film study, maybe some of the coaches have done is, you know, they, they feel like uh, generally uh, Stanford's better at quarterback than they were last year. 
Uh, they feel like their front seven is going to be really good. It's un- it's unproven, but there's a lot of talent there on the defensive line, uh, a lot of talent there in the linebacker core. I think there's some concerns about Stanford's secondary, uh, which is which is somewhat odd to think about uh, when you're talking about Stanford, at least for the last five, six years or so. Um, you know, for me, 100 percent, it's it's really weird to say this still, even to this day, it's still weird to say this. I believe Oregon has a far superior physical advantage on the line of scrimmage on both sides of the line of scrimmage, offense and defense to Stanford. And I believe that's the way that Oregon wins this football game. It's just going to be a good old fashioned ass whooping in the trenches, uh, wear Stanford down, keep running the football, open things up in the second half as your offense gets more comfortable and, and commit to making that young quarterback beat you, uh, you know, at least, at least defensively, if you're Oregon, I, I think you commit to that. Um, maybe a, at least on the, uh, the offensive side of the ball, maybe Hith and QB 11 can kind of give us their thoughts on, on what they think they see from Stanford. Hith, why don't you get us started? Well, I think the, I think the most interesting thing and, and the most potential trouble that Stanford could throw Oregon's way if they do something unexpected is they actually have a pretty good looking talent profile on the offense. You know, obviously Davis Mills is a five-star quarterback. Um, the, you know, they, I like the running back Austin Jones. I, I like their wide receiver core. They're all four stars. Um, uh, they, you know, have, who knows what their offensive line is going to be, frankly, but you know, they got a lot of experience last year because they were super injured. Um, and you know, the problem is it, the kind of offense that David Shaw has typically wanted to run and seems like stubbornly committed to is not a good uh, fit for that uh, talent profile, right? Like it's, it's running behind a great offensive line and great tight ends. They don't have a great offensive line. They don't have great tight ends. If they ran an offense that was a little more like USC's, you know, like sort of the total opposite where the ball's getting out of the quarterback's hands real fast uh, to, uh, you know, distributed to a bunch of uh, good wide receivers. Um, First of all, I would be shocked because it would mean that David Shaw has completely changed his offense. You know, I'd just be floored. But as soon as I pick my jaw up off the floor, you know, I'd be like, all right, Andy uh, Avalos, you got your uh, work cut out for you because that's, you know, not only a different game plan than you were probably expecting, but it's, you know, it actually kind of fits what their talent is. Um that I think is the biggest potential for a surprise everywhere else on the field, offense, defense, you know, how it matches up, what Stanford's personnel losses, like, nah, should be a cakewalk for the ducks. Unless Stanford does something really surprising. QB, your thoughts on Stanford's offense. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. I think Davis mills could potentially, if David Shaw was willing to kind of compromise his, um, his identity and, and how would they stick to the run? Um, Davis Mills is a good athlete, actually. Uh, he can actually run around a little bit. And so if they were to implement some more zone read and RPO stuff, they'd be able to stress the Oregon defense more than they will in their traditional sense, just kind of lining up and playing more standard football. The thing that I actually think is going to be interesting about this game is I'm pretty sure, and I think Kipley would probably agree with me, just like they did last year, Stanford's going to stack the box and sell it to, to stop the run. And I'm interested to see if Joe Moorhead and Mario Cristobal and the staff decide to uh, play into that strength and run the ball kind of like Oregon did last year at times, or if they kind of, if, if they let the RPO game loose a little bit, because I know with Moorhead, they're going to be tagging a lot of second and third level defenders. So if they start creeping down to the box, we actually could see um, a lot of called runs become pass plays early in that game and kind of soften things up a little bit. I like I'm, that. Oh, sorry. 
I like- I'm also interested to, to piggybacking a little bit of what QB just said yeah. is that Stanford's probably weakest on their defense in terms of their defensive backs. They lost their best cornerback, Paulson Adebo, who decided to opt out. The, their other starting cornerback transferred to UCLA. It's the lowest uh, talent profile that they have anywhere on the team. And, you know, that's one of the most interesting questions about Oregon, too, is, you know, is Tyler Shuck or Anthony Brown, I suppose, you know, going to chuck that ball down the field against the suspect secondary? I, I You know, we could find out an answer to how good Tyler Shuck or Anthony Brown is real quick. Well, also in like in addition to that, when you when you have a shortened offseason, you don't have spring ball, you have limited reps. How much of the RPO game is installed? How much do they feel comfortable running at this point in the season? Because it's a short season, you're not going to be holding stuff on the shelf for later on because you got to win now or you're not going to win at all. Um, but they is the execution going to be there? Is the trust going to be there as a play caller to add a bunch of tags and to really go after a secondary that's going to be left on an island and doesn't really match up well physically? I, I really like this train of thought from you guys. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, um, when, when you talk about kind of changing your perspective now that you've had all this time to overthink and overanalyze, I, I wonder if it's changed how you view the change at coordinator with Joe Moorhead coming in. How much change do you think we're going to see on offense from the Ducks? I suspect it's going to be minimal. I I have no, absolutely no insider knowledge on this question. Um, I've studied Joe Moorhead fairly extensively. It's my pinned tweet on my, my Twitter account. It's day one. Um, and he's an extraordinarily adaptive guy. Like if I didn't, I studied 13 seasons worth of his film. If I didn't know wow. it was the same guy, I would think every year it was a new guy because the playbook is different every year. Like I, I'm not kidding. This guy does not try to fit square pegs into round holes. Like he, he, realistically assesses the talent that he has and doesn't have and designs an offense that works well for it. And I don't really know um, what that's going to be. If I did, they'd be paying me millions of dollars to be an offensive coordinator. Right. But uh, I suspect that the way that he's going to deal with is to say, you know what, there was an offense here when I got here, it was, you know, every advanced statistical service had it in the top 20. Uh, You know, let's change some emphases, maybe, you know, try to go for some more explosive plays, but I sort of suspect the playbook's it's going to look pretty similar to what it looked like in 2019. Like, I don't think he's going to install the triple option. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't think it's going to an air raid team. Um, I, and uh, you know that, but that's just a guess, you know, one of the reasons why your, your gut gets kind of churny and this way too much time to think about it is like, maybe Moorhead's going to try to do something nuts. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, most of the changes will probably be subtle, at least to the layman's eye as you watch the game. But um, like Hifliday highlighted, he's been very adaptive to his personnel over the years. So if you want to think of the differences in Oregon's offense this year, I think the place you start is where the difference is in the personnel. Um, so if you feel like you've got a better, more explosive receiving group, probably going to see more downfield passing. You've got two quarterbacks who are both equally athletic. You could probably incorporate the quarterback into the run game more. So I think what we end up seeing is an offense that stresses the defense more from a numbers standpoint, just by incorporating the quarterback into the run game. And then also adding on top of what was your last year was year one of the RPO in the Oregon offense. Well, we just hired the, the, the king of the RPO, the, the five-star chef of the RPO. So where, where does, how does that develop and, and what changes do we see in the RPO game to alleviate some of the stress in the box? Yeah, I love uh, both the points that you guys make there because, you know, obviously I'm the guy that, that tends to get a little bit more of the inside stuff, and, and you guys are dead on, both of you. Uh, you know, the 
the RPO, uh, you know, game that was that was added last year for most people probably didn't add much to the to the naked eye, but really made Oregon's offense a little bit more efficient and slightly more explosive. I do say slightly. Uh, one of the things that I was going to include in today's juice, which I'm currently writing as we're recording this, is, you know, what I was told about Moorhead and what, you know, everybody's kind of seen so far. And, uh, you know, the, the two words I got, which really en- encapsulate what you guys said, he's innovative and he's collaborative. And, you know, so by that, it means he didn't know anything about the pistol before he got to Oregon. Gets to Oregon, bends Jim Mastro's ear, and I'm sure that's going to continue to be a heavy piece of the offense moving forward, whether you like it or not. Joe Moore had seen and heard enough to know to put that into his playbook. So, again, I think like you guys are saying, most of the the common fan that's watching it is going to see an offense that's a lot similar, but it's going to be the wrinkles that that the coaches know about and the players know about that make this offense probably much more efficient. You'll see some new things in the offense that Joe Moorhead will bring to the table, but you'll see a lot of the old similar elements. And I would guess that you'll probably see more of the older elements than you would have normally given what we've gone through and given that there's a six game schedule and that you didn't have quite as much fall camp to put in as much as you'd probably like. So I think you guys hit the nail on the head. And that was something that, uh, that I've included in the juice is just that, you know, so far Moorhead has been, uh, it's a very innovative breath of fresh air is what I heard offensively and that the offense is starting to really start, uh, really starting to click at this point in time, but just that his ability he does carry an ego about him, but he's very open to being collaborative with other minds. And that includes Alex Mirabal and uh, Jim Mastro in the, in this offense currently. I think this is a good opportunity. Well, oh, sorry. Sorry. I cut you off, man. Yeah. I'll let you speak. No, you're you no, know, sorry. I don't, I don't want to take over the conversation too much, but I want to add one thing. I mean, in regards to the pistol, he hasn't ran it a lot, but he did incorporate it at least at Penn state in 2017 uh, with Saquon Barkley. And, and, and like Jim Mastro says, and really there's not, there's not any good reason to be against the pistol. All it changes, and, and this was something that I actually learned when we were down there, you and me, J-Hop, J- is that uh, the, the, having the back and the dot or aligned directly behind the running back just gives you, form, gives you more formational balance and flexibility to having them offset. You don't have to shift. You don't have to tip your hand. They can't play strength of the defense away from the running back. So. I could see how somebody like Moorhead, who comes from a West Coast or a modified West Coast passing background, is going to want to have that formational balance because it gives you more flexibility with the back in the passing game. It also, the pistol showed up in Mississippi State as well. He's using it to great effect with Kylan Hills, one of the great running backs of the present moment. Um, I like that. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, my brain is not quite attached to my tongue today. Um, I was going to say... Uh, I think this would be a good opportunity to kind of flip things over to the other side of the ball. We talked about some of the things we're excited to see offensively from Oregon. Uh, now defensively, what do you like about how the Ducks match up with Stanford? Personnel. <laughs> it's, it's a one-word answer. I mean, the personnel is just <laughs> substantially better for Oregon. I mean, there's the, the front seven for Oregon this year is going to be probably from top to bottom the most explosive and talented that we've ever had. I mean, in 2014, we went to the national championship. We had two guys. We had Armstead and Buckner, but everything around him was pretty average to okay, to serviceable. But uh, when you have the best edge rusher in the program's history and then a whole stable of interior players to play two positions, uh, it's going to be a fun defense to watch just from the personnel standpoint. 
the other thing that's remarkable about Oregon's defensive line is, you know, yes, Kayvon Thibodeau is, you know, a monster and, you know, is number one recruit. Uh, much of the rest of the, the defensive line, uh, we're talking about three stars, but they're very well developed. You know, Jose, Jose Alavea earns every penny that he makes, you know, uh, Austin Value, Jordan Scott, uh, Popo Amvai, uh, Brandon Dorless was like, I was like shocked to discover that he was a mid three star because he plays like a four star. Um, you know, that's a that's a defensive line that's just tearing up Pac-12 offensive lines. Uh, not that a Pac-12 offensive lines are, you know, any stouter than tissue paper, but still like you would think these dudes are four stars, you know, uh, it's just a remarkable job of development. Yeah. Well, yeah. And if you look at the profile too, that's, I think that's been the biggest improvement because if you go back and you look at those rosters from 2016 and 2017 and even 2018, when follow you, or sorry, 2017 is when they were freshmen. But when those guys were coming in, there was a surplus of the same body type and it was the wrong one. It was a bunch of six yeah. foot to six, two guys that were 300 pounds of limited length and mobility. Whereas now, even when Oregon is taking a, a three-star prospect in the defensive line or in the front seven, they're, they're going out of region to find guys that have the length that they want in the twitch. And then they have, all they have to do is develop the physical side of things to match up with the athletic traits. So there's, there's been a great upgrade there. The credibility is through the roof too. Like when, when this staff goes out in 2020 and gets Jalen Smith and Jake Shipley, who are mid three stars, you know, according to two, four, seven, any other program picks those up and says, no, no, these guys are secretly four stars. Trust me. I, I don't believe them. Joe Salavea says that I believe him. I say, yes, sir. They sure are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely, Oh, sorry, QB. But yeah, I mean, just real quick, you, you, what QB said, You've added three to four inches of length, you know, almost across the board there and 20 to 30 pounds on average across the board uh, in, in that front seven. And, and like you guys said, from a personnel standpoint, even two. And that's the thing. I think we can we could talk and say, hey, you know, uh, front seven versus front seven, Oregon has the advantage. But then when you start saying two deep and three deep, Oregon is exponentially better than Stanford, who's who's got a huge problem in terms of depth right now all over the place. Well, and if you want to if you want to line up and run the football against a team with a multiple front, if they can only play one front, which is kind of what we were stuck in last year, because outside of Popo, we didn't have a ton of length in the front seven because Dorless wasn't playing a whole lot yet. But if you want to have a multiple front, you need guys that can play multiple positions. And when you have a, a, a limiting factor of guys that are under six two, you can't you can't stem those guys out to a four eye and have them stack a tackle and play two gaps. So. Now, because Oregon has more bodies, more developed bodies, longer bodies and bigger bodies, they've got more they've got more versatility and, and Avalos can really actually play those multiple fronts against every team on the schedule, which is a huge advantage um, versus what what's been the case in years past. Uh, safe to say this year's D is an upgrade over last year's great side. I think it's uh, a. I would say that yeah. it is a deeper and more balanced defense. I, you know, uh, yeah. better sort of difficult to, to, you know, how do you factor every single thing in that goes into better? Plus like they're so damn good last year, you know, they're pretty, they're bumping up against the ceiling already, but I do think it's distributed better, you know, like for the secondary, for example, let's talk about the safeties, you know, last year, the safeties had one stud, you know, in, in, in Javon Holland. And then, you know, you had uh, uh, guys who were new to starting like McKinley, you had, 
backups who were freshmen like uh, um, uh, Stevens and Hill. Um, you had Brady Breeze, who was a great, you know, right place, right time player. Uh, but, you know, it was sort of uneven. And and the six safeties that they're looking at for the six spots right now, uh, it's, you know, all six of those dudes, you know, are, are experienced. You know, we're not talking about freshmen. We're talking about, you know, multi-year starters. We're talking about uh you know guys you know where you're not going to slip something through against a hot and cold secondary it's well distributed um it's actually up and down the roster offense and defense the thing that impresses me most about oregon you know especially compared to the rest of the pac-12 teams that i've had to dive into is that like there's no one dude who's the super stud and everybody else is like hiding in his shadow like it's even it's evenly distributed you can't find a hole in this armor yeah, and I think uh, I know QB eleven and I were there last year for some of the coaches' camp, and just to see some of the stuff that Ken Wilson and Andy Avalos had talked about a little bit, kind of the pre-snap, you know, the 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 movement up front on the defensive line. We saw a little bit more of that later in the year in this defense, and I think you know, given that this is the second year of Avalos and those guys have been able to train for that in the spring and the summer and and whatnot, I think we'll see even more of that. So you you're basically returning a second year coordinator with like. Like uh, Hith said, I think a better distributed talent that's probably as a two deep is probably better. It's tough to say the starting 11 is better, but as a two deep, it's probably better than last year. Yeah, I think you're going to be able to pick out spots where last year might be better. It's going to be really hard for Jamal Hill, as high as the expectations are and as raving the reviews that are coming out about him are, uh, to come out and be Javon Holland of last year. Where you're going to see the biggest difference, and I think you'll see probably an accumulative upgrade defensively, is last year the best players on defense were largely by and large freshmen. Jerome McKinley was a freshman. Michael Wright was our best corner, and he was a freshman. Kayvon Thibodeau and Mace Funa were our two best edge players, both true freshmen. They're now coming back with a full offseason, a full year of development and maturity, and now we get to see those bumps like we saw for Popo and Mabe going into last year. So Popo comes onto the scene last year. If we get a bump like that from Christian Williams and then everybody else just keeps taking those incremental steps and improvements, you're going to see a, a better unit overall just from a, from a, an, uh, a development standpoint. And, and uh, you've added three five-stars along the way, Noah Sewell, Justin Flo, and Dante Manning. That doesn't hurt either. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I, th- I think we got a grasp there now uh, from both the you gents and or at least all three of you with Bagley. Uh, you know, how do you guys see this game playing out? Just, you know, give me just somewhat of a score prediction. How do you see this one playing out for Oregon? QB, let's start with you. Uh, I, I see it going quite a bit like last year. I, I don't think that Stanford's going to be able to get a whole lot going. Uh, the big difference is, is it's going to be Oregon's first game with five new starters on the offensive line against a front that's pretty good. Not the best front we're going to play all year, but certainly not the worst either. So I think there's going to be some growing pains in the first half. I think we might have a couple three and outs. Uh, I, I'll go probably 35-13 or something along those lines. Yeah. I, I- I'm seeing something similar. I mean, the the only real piece of evidence that we have looking at the rest of college football is that it seems like defenses have been sort of harder hit by the pandemic and the you know limitations and practices and so forth, you know, for it. So, you know, any other team, I would sort of say, you know, take with the t- take the same spread, but like add ten points to both teams' scores. So, you know, uh, I, I I would say, you know maybe more like 20 points for Stanford. Um, but yeah, I, I think that Oregon's going to be somewhere around 40. Like, I, I just don't think that Stanford's defense is set up to stop 
um, a Joe Moorhead offense that this talented and, you know, the points that Stanford's going to score are going to be, well, they're going to be surprises, you know, which is not to say you shouldn't expect surprises in the first week. You should always expect the unexpected, but you know, it's going to be the stuff that happens in football. I very much doubt that Stanford's going to put together like a methodical drive in which any Oregon fan is going, you know, uh Oh, uh, about, you know, that, that just doesn't strike me as where Stanford is at right now. What score makes the most sense to you, J-Hop? Uh, well, it, you know, it sounds like they're, if I'm taking the average, it's like somewhere 35-17-ish between the two of them. And, and I'd, have to, I, I'd have to say that's probably about where I'm at. I think, uh, I agree wholeheartedly, I think this offense will, will come out and maybe have a really good scripted first drive, maybe have some three and outs, just, you know, Stanford will make some adjustments and this and that, and fans will be, you know, lightened up my message board. Oh, my gosh, we've got to fire Moorhead. But the reality is I think they'll get more comfortable. That offensive line will will sink a little bit better. They'll go into the locker room at halftime, and Mario Cristobal will, you know, slap some asses and say, hey, here, we're okay. Let's just stick with it. Uh, you know, run the ball, get consistent on offense. And, and, you know, I know we talked about the Oregon defense. I think I agree with Hith that you might see, like, a busted play in the secondary and a guy get loose for Stanford or – you know, some 60 yard touchdown or something that, that gets them some points. But I think overall Stanford's going to struggle moving the ball consistently down the field against this defense. And I think in the second half, I I, I could see this being a, a 15 to seven ball game at halftime or something in that regard. And then I think it's all Oregon in the second half. Yeah, this is a game that goes one of two ways, right? It's either really slow going for Oregon in the first half or Oregon comes out and just obliterates them from from go, so it's I, it's not one of those games where it's like oh this one could be tight in the fourth quarter. It's either going to separate in the second half or the first quarter. Uh, I want to I want to take one more one more thing before we let you guys go, and and we appreciate everything so far. I know Matt and I both do, but uh, yeah. and this is kind of going in reverse here, but uh, let's pack 12 overall. Okay. I know we've all kind of looked at everything and we've seen everything. We've talked extensively about Stanford. Um, and maybe just real quick, you don't have to go too far in depth, but how do you feel about Oregon and the pack 12 North? Who else do you like there? And who do you see coming out of the South? Hith, let's start with you. Well, I think the Pac-12 did Oregon big favor and how they structured the, you know, the schedule because it's such a nice ramp up in terms of difficulty. You know, it's like playing a video game, right, where like each stage is harder than the last stage, right? Um, you know, going from Stanford to Wazoo to UCLA to Oregon State to Cal, which, you know, a lot of people are a, a bit higher on than I am. And then Washington, I think, is the real threat, you know, as pretty much always. That is, you know, uh, their overall roster strength is simply, you know, it's the only team in the north that's comparable to oregon um and you know you know they're going to be up for it because it's a rivalry game and uh uh you know so i'm looking forward to that game um in the south uh you know i'm pretty conventional wisdom i think it goes usc asu utah i would say though look out for utah i think a lot of people sort of written them off because uh you know they, they lost a whole bunch of starters but when you dive into their um roster they actually have a number of options at a lot of players and i think they're deeper than the other you know lousy teams uh in the south um and boy it doesn't take a, a big stretch of the imagination to see him win four or potentially five games if they can upset usc um in salt lake city in november when those you know southern california boys are going to be freezing um yeah it was sort of a utah's sort of my dark horse for the south you know i know the conventional take is usc versus asu and it gets decided in the first weekend but uh look out for utah 
QB, what you got? Uh, I got something similar. I actually, like Hippie, kind of stole my idea here, is that uh, Utah, I think, is the second-best team in the South, especially with a lot of the reports coming out of their camp that Cameron Rising might actually just beat out Jake Bentley for the job. And uh, he was a pretty highly regarded prospect coming out of high school with some good talent. Uh, and they have a lot of similar construction to Cal. They don't return as many guys, but they return essentially the entire offensive line. Uh, they've got some solid backs and actually like their receiver group more than I like Cal. So uh, I think Utah actually ends up being second in the South. Defensively, they're a lot stronger, like Hippoday mentioned. Um, I actually think they have better depth of talent, uh, especially on defense, than um, is is being mentioned just because of the guys that they lost. And then in the North, it's Oregon and Washington. I think Cal and Oregon State are a distant, distant third and fourth. Uh, but that's also dependent on Washington having an offense because there's a lot of outcomes that could be possible for them offensively, as could be for Oregon. So uh, I think it's Oregon and Washington at the top with Cal and Oregon State and then Stanford and uh, Washington State at the bottom. And I think Arizona State will probably likely finish third in what is a pretty weak Pac-12 South beyond USC and Utah. I've been yeah, thinking what? about ASU a lot because, well, it's because I've been thinking about how does depth play out in a shortened season? Like on the one hand, we've introduced this totally new factor that can cause a player to be unavailable, right? Like, you know, just like your beloved Badgers saw, you know, where you can have a phenomenal performance one week and the game's canceled the next week and the quarterback's not available. Like, you know, you have this, you know, at any given moment, you're, you might need your depth to, to step up and play. On the other hand, they're only playing six games. So it may be that Utah never runs into its, you know, November, you know, December problem because they're not playing through three, four months. I, I'm not really sure. I, it just introduces an, so much extra variance uh, into it. I, I think where you were going with ASU is that they, you know, that they've got a lot of frontline talent, but not a lot of depth. And I, I'm saying, like, maybe they never get punished for not having any depth because the season's over by the time that would kick in. Yeah. Well, and I'm not so sure about their frontline talent either. Like, they, no. they, they have. They have holes kind of like like every other team in the Pac-12 does, but they're, they're we're basically all riding in that freshman wide receivers are going to come in and replace the production and freshman running backs of Brandon Ayuk and Eno Benjamin as if it's nothing. When Eno Benjamin got more from behind nothing on the offensive line as maybe any back in the Pac-12 last year. I mean, he was constantly creating yards that weren't there. So I think that their run game is going to take a step back. And I'm, I'm not sold that you're just going to be able to put a band-aid group of offensive linemen together from a bunch of guys that weren't even playing at other schools. Yeah, I, I guess uh, for me, wrapping up super quick, I, I like Utah and I like the fact that they're a physical style of football. And I think that gives USC a lot of problems, uh, at least along the line of scrimmage on both sides there. So I like the fact that you guys both pointed out Utah because uh, – you know, Whittingham knows how to how to win football games. He knows how to beat USC. Um, and I think that that big power style of, of play will serve them well against USC and ASU. Uh, but ultimately, they'll run into a buzzsaw if they face Oregon because Oregon's just far superior when it comes to talent um, and can be equally as physical. All right. Um, do you have any other questions for these guys, Justin? No, I mean, I don't know about you. I mean, I could sit here and talk about this all day long yeah. because it's it's fun bouncing back and forth and and just getting fresh ideas and things that you hear and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. I agree with that, you know. And and uh, but no, these guys got lives and, and things to do, and we can't have a three hour podcast. So um, maybe we can get them back next week or week after and and, and do it again. Well, I'd love. Can that. I uh, throw in one more thing real quick? Sure. Too? Sure. 
Uh, I know this was, we were talking about Moorhead's offense earlier. Um, and I think, I know Hip will agree with me on this. There's been a lot of questions about Oregon's offensive line. I feel pretty good about four of the five guys going out just but from reports and what we've seen over the years, watching them on tape. Um, but that four of the five we're talking solid Jones, Moore and Bass is 1000 times better than what he had his first year at Penn state. So if he can get a run game going with that group, he should be able to get a run game going with this group against inferior defensive talent to what he played in the big 10. Yeah. That was remarkable. When I did my film study on, on Penn state is the first thing that jumped out before all the explosive plays before the way that he attacks grass. The first thing that jumped out was like, Oh my God, their offensive line cannot block at all. And, <laughs> and, and QB's totally right. You know, whatever it is that Oregon puts out on the field, you know, by necessity will be better than, than what Penn state had. And he did a great job at Penn state. Uh, Justin, you are going to put a target on me and QB's backs. If you delay the juice any longer to keep talking to us. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I'm getting some heat there. There's probably 30 comments on me saying it's going to be this afternoon, but uh, no, just to wrap up with what you guys said, I've heard that the staff internally is very pleased with this offensive line group and thinks that uh, the four that you mentioned there, QB, you know, and, and even, and, and even Forsyth has been consistent and been great, but the four of those guys, you know, would have basically, you know, more than likely started over all the guys that left yet last year, save Panay Sewell, had they come in at the same time. It's, it's a, it's a far superior physical talent and, and, and has a lot more upside. It's simply a matter of that group coming together, but they're pretty confident they're going to be able to push their way through the Pac-12 with this group. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that was kind of what I was thinking. So I'm glad that we were able to get that out. My apologies. <laughs> well, and that's a little juice tease for everybody else, anyways, right? Some freebies. This is like the most relaxed podcast in the world for me. I'm not gonna lie. You guys are doing my job for me. I am totally cool with that. I get to listen to some experts. Um, is there anything else we want to say here? No, I got it right. I better get this wrapped up and get back to writing some juice or I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. So, no, we appreciate you guys, and I am definitely looking forward to doing this again. Uh, both of you guys, tremendous work today. Take care. Thank you. Have a good one. Okay. All right. Um, it's just you and I now, my friend, um, real quick. And then there were two. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, real quick, do you want to get into five games? Well, yeah, we got to do five games. I'm a, I'm a big fan of tradition. I don't know about you, but yeah. I'm a big fan of tradition, and and so some things got to stay. Uh, I, I, um, we could probably talk about this off air, but we're also going to have to reintroduce one of my favorites, which is you know uh, lock of the week. We have to do the lock of the week too as well. So, um, but yeah, let's let's get this sucker finished up because I don't know. I think we're close to an hour already. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Five games. We do this every week. We pick five games out of the college football slate that we think you would want to watch. Five games we think you should watch. Okay, you go first. Uh, I'll rattle off a couple, um, and this one's going to be weird to some people, but I went ahead and wrote down Michigan State versus Michigan. It's not a great slate of college football this week overall. I think the Wisconsin-Nebraska game would have been a, something worth watching, but obviously they're not playing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went Michigan State versus Michigan, and the reason I listed this game, A, it's 9 o'clock on Fox. It was one of the only early games I could find. 
B, I really kind of want to see if Michigan State is really that bad and made a potentially Willie Taggart-esque hire in Mel Tucker. I don't know. I hate to label it that yet because that's pretty severe, but it was a really bad showing for Michigan State week one. Conversely, it was a really good showing for Michigan week one. I did see a pretty good football team, not just a team that happened to win a football game. Um, but I'm still not sold on Harbaugh week in and week out. So I just want to see if those two went to extremes in week one or if there will be a little bit of a, you know, of a more of a median average this week between the two coming somewhere in the middle. So I have that one. Second one I have written down is Texas versus Oklahoma State. Does the dumpster fire continue in Austin? Is Oklahoma State as good as I potentially think they are? I thought they, they, they played a good Iowa State team last week and won. Um, I think they've got a great run game. I think their defense is, is much realigned and looks really good. So I'm just kind of interested to see, you know, Texas versus Oklahoma State. And, and more than likely, I'm going to include Texas most weeks because I do, A, like the dumpster fire, and B, a, a totally different topic, but just the contract talks with Mario Cristobal, I think they're, they're a team that potentially makes a play if they make a change. Yeah. I have both of those games. I said this on the radio show yesterday. Michigan, Michigan State is interesting to me just because a lot of people did not expect Michigan to look like they did last week. And if their defense brings that physicality week in, week out, and their offense doesn't shoot itself in the foot like they did so many times the last few years, maybe that Michigan team is good. So I, I want to see, you showed it one week, you did it one Saturday, can you bring it the next Saturday? Um, and then, of course, that Mel Tucker question in East Lansing. Uh, Texas, Oklahoma State, I had that one too, simply because we we love to pick on Texas. I say we, college football fandom loves to pick on Texas. We love to critique Texas, but there is a reality that Texas has a deeper budget and goes out and uh, gets higher recruiting ratings than Oklahoma State. So even though the Cowboys are the number six team in the country, I think this is a real challenge for them. This, this might be the first real test they faced in the Big 12 this season. Well, yeah, when we talk about Oregon, we talk about having a, a personnel advantage you know, over most of the teams of the Pac-12. Well, that's how it is for Texas. Although, you know, Texas and Oklahoma basically do over everyone else in the Big 12. Um, there's no doubt that that on paper, Texas has a sheer advantage over Oklahoma State, but Oklahoma State certainly looks like the better football team right now. Yeah. Um, Give me a couple of years. Okay. So I'm trying to remember. Oh, right. This is easy. Um, yep. I mentioned three games on the radio show yesterday. Memphis Cincy was my third. Um, just, just simply... It fits the same bill that I've hit on all year. Give the G5 some love. But also right now, we're kind of at the midway point. Right before the Pac-12 starts, the Ducks are going to be anywhere from 12 to 15, depending on the poll that you read. I think that's where the committee would have them if a vote came out at the start of the year. And right now, really, in my opinion, the only G5 that could get into the big dance ahead of them is Cincinnati. So I want to see if that team can keep winning. Yeah. No, I mean, I've been, I've been banging the Cincinnati drum for a couple of weeks now and the BYU drum. They're good football teams. They look good. They're, they're disciplined football teams. Don't have as much talent as some of these other teams. You know, surely if, yeah, if they matched up against Georgia or Bama, 
or Clemson and they played them six times, they might only win one of those games, but they're good football teams. And, and, and quite frankly, pretty much everybody else in the country that faced Bama, Georgia, Clemson, or Ohio State for that matter, you know, six times they'd lose five times. So it's not really a knock on Cincinnati. So mm-hmm. um, I didn't have that one. I think we're both going to have the Ohio State-Penn State game, if I had to guess. That's yeah. a no-brainer. Yeah. Um, so, that you know, that's four there for us. I did uh, I did go ahead and put down LSU versus Auburn because just like Texas, I'm watching Auburn. And frankly, I think if that's a team that decides to make a move at coach, uh, you know, comes calling – Mario Cristobal's phone number if a new contract hasn't been extended or redone at Oregon by that time. So I think you watch LSU versus Auburn. Just a, it seems like there's a storm going on at LSU right now. You know, getting getting hit with some uh, with the penalties, the self-imposed penalties, and and Ed Orgeron's you know got some stuff going on. I think you watch LSU versus Auburn just because there's not that much else on. I've got one more game, and I think you do too. Yeah, you mentioned the Ohio State game, so we'll uh, we'll, we'll kind of file that one away that's my number four and number five for me it's it's tough like I want Pac-12 after dark I want a balanced schedule I have three 9 a.m games and then um just just purely out of enthusiasm I want to see Indiana Rutgers same same thing that I mentioned with Michigan earlier you showed me something last week can you bring it the next week? Can you show yeah. consistency? I already know that question for Clemson. I, I feel like I know that question for Ohio State, for Alabama. I don't know that question for Michigan, and I don't know that question for Indiana. So I, I want to see Indiana Rutgers. Um, that is a uh, 1230 game on FS1, and um, it's it's weird. It's the kind of week for me where I, I think – if anything, I'm going to have a pot of coffee at like 8 in the morning and get all these games in early. I agree. That would be a fun one. I was, that was a lot of fun to watch that Indiana-Penn State game last week in the overtime and and, uh, and the call to go for it on fourth down. I was sitting there going, do it, do it, freaking do it. And it was awesome. So, I mean, great game. But like you said, I still have just as many questions about Indiana as I did, you know, uh, before they won last week. Um, I don't have those questions about Ohio State. I know I didn't say it, but I think they're going to boat rate Penn State. I thought mm-hmm. Penn State was overranked to begin with. I thought Texas was overranked to begin with. So, you know, there's a couple of them that I've been at least uh, somewhat right on. I thought Tennessee was overranked to begin with as well. So, uh, the last game I had, real quick, and it's probably for a lot of the same reasons we've talked about, but I went ahead and wrote down Nevada and UNLV and the battle for the state of Nevada, the bragging rights there, but that's a 7.30 game. So just like you, I was looking for something in the evening to watch. Was I was fairly disappointed in UNLV's performance week one. I know a lot of Duck fans were. I'm not sitting here trying to bash on Arroyo. I just kind of want to see how he gets his team back in the second week. I know that there's not much talent on that team. You know, I know that there's a lot of things going on at UNLV, and he's having to do some rebuilding. But, you know, I, for me – to watch a program like that, you're just looking to see fight. You're looking to see improvement. You're looking to see, you know, if you lost by 30, how about you lose by 20 in the next game? I mean, just the baby steps. So uh, I just kind of want to see that. I think Nevada's going to beat them, probably beats them fairly easily. But, uh, again, that's an evening game, and I know as Duck fans, everybody's kind of keeping a small eye on UNLV. 
Yeah, uh, my in-laws are big San Diego sports fans, so I'm, I'm kind of familiar with that San Diego State program, just keeping tabs on the teams in that area. That's a really good football program year in, year out. I'm yeah. not going to diss UNLV or take too much from UNLV after that game, but I I think that there is a little bit of cause for concern um, when you see the change that Justin Herbert has for, uh, overgone in the NFL and you hear Hith and QB11 and you talk about the change that Oregon expects from the, uh, the play calling side on offense and you see UNLV struggle with the only real personnel change the Ducks made, Marcus Arroyo. The, the question for me is, is Marcus Arroyo ready to be a head coach? Yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, we all had our questions about Arroyo when he was here. You know, how good of a play caller was he? Was it Herbert? Was it the offensive line? Was it Arroyo? Was it Mario Cristobal telling him what he had to do? And, and you know, Arroyo's at, here's the thing, Arroyo's at UNLV now. He can call whatever the hell he wants to call. He called all the same shit. I mean, we saw the same offense that we saw at Oregon in the last two years. Almost nearly the the same run plays, a lot of pistol. He called the same uh, play on fourth down that he used at Oregon uh, on a couple of occasions that ultimately had success. Um, didn't have success there because everybody knew it was coming. Um, no doubt he's got a talent gap. Uh, no doubt that, uh, you know, for me, I was just kind of hoping to see that team, you know, almost put up, be, be kind of like Washington State where you might lose the game, but it's 65 to 64 when you lose. And it's, you know, you're putting up a hell of a fight, you no know, ton of points. And, and frankly, UNLV didn't do that. So um, with all the questions about offense, it'll be really interesting to see the differences in Oregon's first game against a very good Stanford team offensively and just kind of chart that against what UNLV does this season uh, under Arroyo. And then obviously, like you said, the progress of Justin Herbert in the NFL, it's really, I don't know, you just kind of take it all in and you kind of, what does this all mean? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it probably means what we think it means and that maybe Marcus Arroyo struggles a bit as an offensive coordinator and off or a play caller or whatnot. We don't know yet, but I imagine we're going to find out in the next three to four weeks. <laughs> yeah. No, I imagine so too. Um, that's five games. I also just real quick while we have a couple of minutes here, I want to know if you've thought about the, uh, the basketball announcement that came out today. Yeah, the schedule schedule came out, 20-game skid, obviously starting at the end of December. Uh, I'd be completely honest, you know, since it came out, I've had to try to write some of the juice and prepare for the pod, so I can't say that I've exa- examined it, uh, you know, with a fine co- fine-tooth comb or anything like that. But um, I- I'm, I'm excited to see this basketball team. I, just con- I-, I continue to be amazed at what Dana Altman does year in and year out and how he pieces together a roster, how he loses pieces, but adds pieces. Um, and then obviously the big thing that jumps out, um, you know, is just the fact that, that, uh, you know, I think Oregon's got a great opportunity there to, to kind of run the table. Um, it, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, I'm excited to watch, uh, I'm excited to watch basketball and, uh, I mean, I don't know, there's not that much to add to the schedule beyond that, but I think it's, I think it's exciting. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I'm excited to see it all shake out. I'm excited that the Pac-12 has a plan for basketball, and right now, at least, the uh, the hope is that that is going to be uh, the most normal of of any sports season that we've had, really 
in any sport at any level since March. So that's a good sign. And the, and the funny note to that is, uh, I guess December 12th is going to be known as hate day because you've got the Ducks playing the Huskies in football. Right. And you've got the Ducks playing the Huskies in men's basketball that day, yeah. the same day. Yeah. So the, the, they better not screw it up and schedule them at the same time. But that's going to be, I mean, we'll just go ahead and anoint that as hate day. Uh, but no, that was great. You know, I posted an interview uh, earlier this week. Melissa Lombardi and Haley Cruz, a couple of players in softball, you know, did a quick interview with media. It sounds like they're really coming together. They don't have their schedule finalized. They don't have a lot of the, you know, they don't have, you know, hey, you can start on this date and practice. You know what I mean? They just don't have a lot of that ironed out yet, but it sounds like they're getting there. But mm-hmm certainly sounds like they got a great team returning. It sounds like they're very optimistic um, as they should be. Um, you know, I've been very impressed with coach Lombardi, you know, to date. And I, there's no reason to think that she doesn't, you know, take this thing a step further with some of the players that she's added along the way. Um, and I, you know, one thing that did stick out is, is she called it her most complete roster since she's been at Oregon, you know, top to bottom hitters, you know, fielders, pitchers, they've got a much deeper roster than she's ever had. So Given the success she's had with the limited roster, I'm excited to see what she does with, you know, with all that talent and a, and a far bigger roster. Yeah, it's it's fun. Obviously, we don't go super in the weeds on this because it's softball instead of football. But the recruiting landscape in softball and in, in baseball and in women's basketball to a lesser extent are so radically different. Um, in that I'm amazed to see the growth Coach Lombardi has made with that program and, and kind of getting them back to life because so much of the, uh, the recruiting in that sport is done really young. Those girls yes. are, are committing at 12, 13, maybe 14 years old, and she has kind of found a way to circumvent that, I think. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it's a much different uh, cycle than football. You know, you're waiting for those players to develop and mature their bodies to mature in football because it's totally different. Like you said, baseball, softball, you know, you're with the way the that baseball works at the, you know, the little league levels and stuff, you're getting names out quicker. You guys, you know, they're able to do these traveling teams and, and it's just so much different. Um, than, than pretty much all the other sports, really. Um, so, yeah, it's just uh, I'm excited to see Coach Lombardi. I'm excited to, to, to see Coach Waz with the baseball team this year. Um, I know we're inching closer to that, but we're also, you know, I guess for all intents and purposes, all eyes are on football. Yeah, yeah, all eyes on football. Duck's going to play Stanford. October is almost over, and then we're going to have a game week. Uh, Matt Bagley, Justin Hopkins here with me. Uh, last thing, you've teased the juice a few times. Normally, I know just from doing this, like we, we've we had, I think, over somewhere between 50 and 90 Scoop Duck pods. We're getting close to 100. Um, usually, if I know you're still writing something on Thursday afternoon, it's really, really, really good. Are, are, um, are we about to have any uh, big, crazy, breaking, epic news hit the wire? I don't think so. Not anything. I mean, right now, I mean, I mean, I could be totally blunt and honest. I mean, right now it's, it's almost a full shift into football versus recruiting, you know, which is what something that I, I spent a lot of time in and the juice right. obviously covers recruiting extensively. Right. So, you know, you got two spots left and, and not a lot of movement this week on recruiting. So yeah, it's going to be football related, but I mean, 
you know, there's gonna be some stuff in there about the scrimmage that happened uh, last night, which was Wednesday night. There's gonna be, you know, some some roster news, some offensive line news, some some offensive news um, in there. A uh, little bit of recruiting stuff. Um, the big news right now, and I won't really get onto it here, but uh, you know, obviously with Siaki Ika, Apple Ika, the uh, he was a four-star defensive tackle that Oregon courted, and there's a video of him dancing with Joe Salavea on his recruiting visit. Ended up signing at, at LSU has already entered the transfer portal in his first year. He's a hot name out there and, and, and Oregon fans are, are already kind of writing him in on the roster. So I have an update there on that and, and kind of what's going on, but that's the lowdown on the juice. But I imagine by the time most people hear this podcast, they will have already read the juice. Probably. Okay. Um, <laughs> anything else you want to talk about before we call it a close this week? I don't think so. I had a great pod. Loved having those two guys on. We need to, you know, I loved having some, fresh air in there other other than just you and me and uh those guys did a great job and i'm excited to to hear this one after it gets put together yeah i think that's the first uh guest we've had since coach chance joined us yeah it's been a while huh so we yeah it's been a while so it's it's time you know football season's back i've been in a lull it's on me so i need to start getting some of these guys back on i think i think the big thing was you and i you know kind of transitioned to how we were recording the podcast and now it's via zoom but i think we've got a pretty good handle on what we're doing you know, with this, with the zoom call thing now. So I think we could start, uh, you know, so obviously I feel more comfortable getting guys on and we'll just, we'll continue to do that. Well, it's tough too. Like in, in previous off seasons, I was just listening back to the Jawan Johnson pod we did because uh-huh. the saints are about to activate him and uh, have him on the roster for his first NFL game. That was an off season interview. Cause that's when players are a little more available with media um, yeah. Micah Pittman, same deal, off-season interview. Uh, Mario Cristobal, it's easier for him to join us in the off-season. Aaron Feld, easier for him to join us in the off-season. When we get right. these big names, um, an assistant coach, a head coach, or a player, it it would have been a good time to talk to them over the last seven months, but the questions wouldn't have been any good, right? We, we weren't right, going right. to be able to ask them, hey. Uh, how was your practice today or, or how do you get along with your coaches or, you know, what do you, what do you think about this game you have up ahead? Cause nobody knew, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. No, that's a good point because you're right. It would have been some weird interviews and it would have been, you know, asking them the same questions they've been asked because everybody's wondering, Hey, is there going to be a season? Was it, you know what? Right. You know, and, and nobody knew the answers. I mean, not even Mario Cristobal. So, it's so just, Mario, uh, tell me about this COVID pandemic that you love, <laughs> right? Like yeah. the, there's only so many times you can ask that. Right. How are all the virtual tours going daily coach? <laughs> and how are all your zoom meetings going daily coach? Oh, great. Perfect. Thanks. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, um, so no, I'm excited. This was a great one to get us kind of, you know, worked back in, get these two guys on, uh, QB 11 hits with a, I thought it was a great conversation mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah, we'll just try and if it's those two guys, or if we get Yogi Roth on or some of the guys we get on breaking down games, we'll try to get some beat writers in along the way. And, uh, I'm just, you know what, six games, seven games, four games. I don't care. I'm excited. I just want to see some football. Yeah. Yeah. I just heard Yogi Roth and got the shakes like a dog here in Pavlov's bell. Um, Great guests today. QB11 is a writer at Scoop Duck. You can follow him on Twitter at QB11SD. And Hithliday is kind of the hidden genius of the Ducks blogosphere. Uh, let's hype him up really quick. At Hithliday1 on Twitter. 
I see him write some really insightful comments on your site, Scoop Duck. And I also know he writes these incredible, detailed film breakdowns at Addicted to Quack. He's a stud. Hitler Day is a guy that, that I feel like, you know, we were on pretty early, you know, and, and recognizing his work mm-hmm. and, and bringing him on. And I know he's, he's since kind of had a, his profiles raised a little bit and much and deservedly. He's great. He's tremendous. So uh, really excited that we built that early relationship with him. And, uh, you know, QB 11, you know, yeah. people don't don't. He's kind of the masked man behind the scoop duck, but just, you know, really has some great insight and, and uh, you know, really is in tune with with Oregon football and, and then recruiting and how that relates to the, you know, the personnel on the field. So uh, really fortunate that we're surrounded by, by guys that are much smarter than us, but uh, we get to have them on. His Twitter is like a daily calendar where his tweets troll Husky fans. There's always one a day that makes me cry. I laugh so hard. Love reading QB 11. Love the insights those guys had on the pod today. And uh, love this pod. Can't wait to do the next one. We're Scoop Duck and Hi-Fi. My name is Matt Bagley. I'm joined over the interwebs by Justin Hopkins of ScoopDuck.com. And we implore you, if you like this pod, listen back to it. We're going to post it on ScoopDuck.com, make it free for you to listen. We're going to put it on all the podcast apps that you might possibly want. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, etc. Just search for Scoop Duck in hi-fi and you'll find it and give us a review leave us a rating leave us a comment tell us what you think all right thank you for listening have a great day and go ducks I can do this now.